Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. Hopefully by now, all of you have heard episode 71 with Julie Bond Blank, and you may remember that we promised to have more from her, and now your wait is over. Julie came to Calvary Mac recently on May 12th to speak at one of our live story night events, and we have that recording for you on this episode. There is a video version of the recording if you'd like to see the photos and slides that Julie talks about, but for privacy, we're not putting the link on the episode notes. So if you'd like to have access to the video version, just contact me directly and I can help you with that. We do want to remind you that Julie will be talking about abuse, and we understand that that can be very triggering for some of our listeners. We encourage you to listen whenever and however is best for you, and want you to know that ultimately, this story is not about abuse, but about hope. One other thing to point out for this audio version is that the event ended with a duet by Brian and Becca Carlson. Sadly, the recording equipment wasn't connected to Becca's microphone, so for this episode, you'll only hear Brian's voice. We're going to skip over the introduction portion of the event and pick up with the opening song performed by Abby Pearson. Anxiety that holds you 
Thank you, Abby. And I want to invite Trisha up. She's going to tell us a little bit about our speaker, Julie. <laughs> well, oh, it's really bright up here, but I know that there's a lot of faces out there, and welcome. So thank you. Jessica, I wanted to thank you for tonight. It was encouraging to me to see how many hands went up when she said, how many have ever been to one? And I wasn't the only one that had my hand up. So that was good to see. And I love this idea that you've created, this space to come together, to share life, to share experiences, to share stories of your life experiences. And I'm really excited and I'm very honored that I get to introduce my friend to share her story with all of you. Our story, like this much. I brought my cheat sheet because I told her I could talk all of her time about her. We met, give or take, about five years ago, where we work now at ARMS, and ARMS stands for Abuse Recovery Ministries and Services. And when I met Julie, what I did not know was that she and I shared a similar story, and she and I traveled on a journey of healing through the very program that we work together at now. And the other piece I didn't know about Julie was that God brought her into my life and used her to speak truth in love. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that term. I grew up with it in church. Truth and love, truth and love. Um, not sure how many of you have been experienced or have experienced the modeling of truth in love. <laughs> Right, But it's so important. It's so important to hear it. And it's a, it's a gift and a talent that I don't know how much she knows is appreciated, truly. Because not a lot of us want to hear truth, but she speaks it in such love. And to be able to speak truth in love means you have to really care. And Julie is a person with a huge heart who cares. She cares about so many, and it's another beautiful quality that I get to experience every day as she shares with me and her coworkers and the people she talks to on the phone on a regular basis. So tonight, I get to be here to introduce Julie, somebody who cares tremendously, to come and share her truth and her story with all of you. So help me welcome Julie Bombler. Thank you. I'm thinking truth and love just means I'm blunt. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I had a tendency of it when I was younger to be tactless. <clears throat> but now that I'm older, I like to think I can be blunt and still be tactful. Thanks for coming tonight. Can we just give a hand to Jessica and the team for putting this thing together? Yeah. They're amazing. Amazing. I want to give you a trigger warning, and I do want to tell you that my story, as you probably saw in the promo, does include substance abuse, does include abuse in our home, and I have kiddos, and I, I just want to ask you a favor, that if you get upset or you get triggered, that it's okay. Get up, walk around, grab some food, go in the lobby, go outside, come back, because the story is all about hope and healing, and that's really what it's about. But don't, don't feel like you can't do that here. You're safe to do that here. Okay? All right. I was a 70s child. You, you were hoping I was 80 or 90s, and I was hoping too, but no. 
we really did have one of those orange Volkswagen vans with the pop-up camper, and we went camping every year. And once, ours went, up, ours went up straight, but once I was sleeping up there, and I woke up in the middle of the night, and I was in the sink. I had fallen off in, in the sink, and my dad was picking me up and tucking me in, and I'm like, ah, you know, it was a... So yes, I do remember things from the 70s. I remember monumental moments. My little brother was born, um, and we put gifts in his bassinet, and I gave him a little golden book because I loved books at a very early age. Um, I went to preschool, and we finger-painted, and it was the funnest thing, and it, but it was all brown. It was all brown paint. But they were like, paint a picture with brown paint. So we're like, cool, we're digging in, you know, we're drawing pictures. And then she said, keywords. she said, now lick your fingers. And it turns out it was chocolate pudding that we were painting with. Isn't that cool? I know, and I remember that for our best preschool year ever. That was great. <laughs> Went on to kindergarten, a trip to Disneyland. We had some memorable Christmas presents, like Princess Leia, the miniature dachshund. She wasn't ready to come from the breeder yet. Um, and so our presents under the tree literally were a dog food bowl and a bone and a water bowl and something else. And we opened them one at a time, so we didn't get it, right? It was uh, several kids, and we opened one at a time, and finally it was like... And then we got a note that said, that comes, come to you as born this day, you know, a miniature dachshund. And we were like, what? puppy time and it was really exciting so those are things I remember from the 70s and my mom my mom had a good news club anybody heard a good news club yes aren't they amazing I know I grew up I even went to CEF camp when I grew up to teach good news clubs because they're a wonderful after-school program and so once a week on Wednesdays, I think it was, everybody in the three neighborhoods around us took the same bus to get to my house. We all packed in there and sat in the house. And one day after our Good News Club, and we had a story about Nicodemus, my mom was tucking me in and asked me about inviting Jesus into my heart, and I did at the age of four. So then the 80s came along, and... I, I have to tell you, books was still a part of the 80s, even though it was a part of the 70s as well. So in between school and Awana and church and procrastinating on cleaning my room, because I was really good at that, I read books. They were my rescue and my escape time into worlds unknown. In fact, I got in trouble for reading books. Can you believe that? Anybody guess why? <laughs> Because I'd be under the covers with the flashlight at 3 a.m. <laughs> and they said, you're on restriction for reading books at 3 a.m. And I was like, oh, but it was so good and I didn't want to put it down, right? You've all been there and done that. So I got on restriction, but for us, restriction meant no friends after school, and it meant limited TV. And we were limited on TV anyway, so no big deal. No friends after school. What did I do? I went to my room, and I read more books when I was on restriction. <laughs> I don't know if my mom knows that, actually. I should probably let her know that. So it gave me more time. So I love stories. I loved writing them, too. I did not love math. Are there any math lovers in the room? I, just would, I admire you. Oh, my word. When I get tired, numbers are the first thing to go out the head, and I'm like, what's two plus three? I don't remember. So I didn't love math. There were many years of tears and struggles with a lot of math problems. I just didn't get it. I had an older brother named Rick, and he had no such problems at all. He got A's really easily. He had athletic finesse, amazing writing skills, lead roles in school plays, and he landed in Hollywood, of all things. So, yeah, he's... He landed in Hollywood, but as a result, I never quite felt good enough. And it probably didn't help that I was a middle child, you know, that middle child syndrome where we need more attention than anybody else. Mm -hmm. 
Our teen years were really tumultuous in our house. In fact, I grew up expecting that I would have tumultuous years with my own teenagers. Um, and I'm glad to say that I didn't, and my brothers haven't either. But uh, Rick and Mom fought a lot, and Mom and I fought a lot. And in those days, they spanked us. It was accepted, the 70s and 80s. And sometimes it was with a wooden spoon in the kitchen. If we were bad enough, we got whipped on our bare bottoms with Dad's leather belt, which still has some bad memories attached to it. I wanted to run away. And once there was an instance of physical abuse that left marks on my face, but only once in my home growing up did that happen. When I was 13, we changed churches, and it totally totally changed my life. My whole life was absorbed in church and youth group and friends and people there. Um, And it was tough, but I got involved in a new church. And at the new church, there was a 28-year-old man that befriended me. And yeah, I was only 13. We were in choir together, and sometimes he helped with the youth events. He was a great listener. Um, He seemed to care about me and my drama, because there was a lot of drama, both in my house and out of my house. He gave me rides back and forth to choir practice, and he did a lot of touching. And this isn't what you would consider inappropriate touching, but this was hand-holding, this was back rubs, this was back scratches, things like that, except that between a 13-year-old girl and a 28-year-old man, it's pretty inappropriate, right? All I knew is that it was my friend. I didn't understand. I cared for him a great deal, and my dad tried to explain to me at the time He tried to explain to me that this man is being inappropriate with you. He's older than you. He shouldn't be doing those things. Um, And I didn't get it, and I didn't want to get it. And in my eyes, he was like my savior, my best friend, and I even might have loved him a little bit. But of course, Dad was right. This man eventually moved, and that was really hard. Um, It took me a full year, almost to the day when I finally woke up one morning and I didn't feel sad anymore about a loss of him. I grieved him at 13 years of age. And of course, as an adult, now I see God's hand in that, right? Hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> he, he reached down and he removed that unhealthy relationship from my life because he loved me that much to do that, and he did that. But that was only my first unhealthy relationship. More were to come. During these years, the beach, by the way, became a very healing place for me. And I'm sure a lot of you recognize the famous rock there. My parents have now retired there and have a place there, and we are there as much as we can be. But throughout the years when there was drama in my life where I had abuse or I had things I needed to heal from, I went to the beach, and God met me there. God still meets me there. It's an amazing place. In high school in the late 80s, I still struggled because I played second fiddle to my older brother still, who was in school with me. I sought popularity, and I didn't find it. I tried out for jazz choir, though, and I was afraid to read the list of results. So my brother and his friend pretty much dragged me down the hall and weeded through the crowd to find the posted list, and they whooped and hollered because I had made it. And you know why I made it? (laughs) I made it because I sang alto in church for so many years that I was sight-reading all this, you know, from this high to this high, and that's what they needed in jazz choir was a decent voice and the ability to learn quickly and sight-read. So that is why I made jazz choir. Here's a picture of our one of our jazz choirs. I was in it both my junior um, and my senior year. I was super involved in drama and musicals. My drama teacher is still my favorite teacher. I, I tell you stories and stories of things he taught me. But for the length of time that we have tonight, I will just tell you that he, I don't think he realized it, but he was really modeling and quoting my Heavenly Father to me. He was a very positive um, aspect of my high school life, um, and I still appreciate that 
to this day. When I was 16, I got a job. And I know a lot of you don't even know what that is up there on the screen. <laughs> so I want to make sure you had a picture. <laughs> because you see, before Blu-ray and before DVDs, there was this thing in a box called a video movie. And it was much like a cassette player, only major. Um, and I worked at a video store, a video store clerk. And the most irritating things was no matter how many stickers we put on them that said, please rewind, they never would. So they'd come back to the store and we'd have to pop in the rewind machine and rewind it before we could put it out on the shelf. So that's what a videotape is, just in case you wanted to know. So somehow I managed two hours of musical practice after school each day and went to my job and did homework late at night and on weekends. And despite all this, I still felt inadequate. I never made homecoming court or class president, unlike my brother. I still struggled to make good grades. I had to work for him. He, he did not, and I did. All my roles in the productions were chorus or minor parts. And dare I tell you that Rick made the lead roles? Of course he did. I'm sure you probably already knew that. My dad had a rule, and it was this. After high school, you have to move out. <laughs> And yes, these days that wouldn't work. These days it doesn't work. I have a 20-year-old at home, so I know this to be I know this to be true. He felt like it was really important in those years to grow and mature and to move out. And I wasn't quite ready for college. So I went to my beach. Um, I went to Cannon Beach Conference Center. I worked there for a while, and then later I attended E. Cola Bible School there as well. And this was in the late 80s. So there at E. Cola, I met Bill. Bill's actually sitting over here. Are you wearing the same shirt? I think you're wearing the same shirt as you are in the picture. <laughs> he is from Pennsylvania. And do you know how we girls are with accents, right? I mean, it's like he had an amazing accent. And I was like, wow, this guy's really cool. And not only that, but every time I saw him walking around campus, he had his Bible under his arm. And I'm like, this guy's going somewhere. And I thought maybe he'd be a missionary. He was a great speaker. Um, and so I asked somebody about him once, and they were like, oh, he has a girlfriend back in Pennsylvania. And I was like, oh, darn, you know. I'm like, okay, all right. So I, I kept my distance and, and did that, but I was quite impressed with him. The conference center asked me to stay on, but it was time to go to an accredited college. So I returned to Washington State. I moved into an apartment and got a full-time job. I made jazz choir again. And apparently at ages 19 and 20, I had a lot of energy because I don't know how I did it <laughs> for sure. So Jay, Jay was also in jazz choir. He's all the way to the left there. You can't see him, and Jay is just short for his full name. But he became my first adult unhealthy relationship. He grew up somewhat churched, but he didn't attend anymore. He was an addict, and during our time together, he was fighting a DWI in Washington that's driving while intoxicated charge. I believed him when he said he wasn't really affected. He had only bent down to grab the cigarette he dropped on the floor when the accident happened. So he liked to wear a lot of leather and to ride motorcycles. So he was a local bad boy, but he had an amazing voice. I mean, it could have won him American Idol if that had been around back then, but of course it hadn't. So he led a popular local band for a very long time. I seri seriously had a problem, though. I had the grass is always greener over there syndrome. I fell away from God, and I chose Jay over him. I made some really poor choices in my quest to keep him. Um, and several years ago, Jay passed away. He was driving his motorcycle, uh, drunk, in the same little town that I grew up in. So he apparently didn't make many changes in his life. 
And when I went to my mom and I said, you know, aren't you ever sad when ex-boyfriends die? You know, it just feels kind of weird. And she said, no, I'm just glad I didn't marry them. <laughs> I said, amen. I'm glad I didn't marry him. That, that's a good way to think about it. So my first husband, I'm going to call him Alan tonight, rescued me from Jay. Alan and I met at work and it was a really quick courtship. I mean, literally we met, we were engaged two months later and we were married two months after that super fast. I really loved him, but there was something really basic missing from our marriage, and I bet you can think what that is. And that was he seemed open to God, but he didn't love God. And when engaged, we met with my parents, and they were pretty concerned. And they said, we're not even going to give you our blessing, ouch, until you go to premarital counseling. So we did. We went with my pastor, and the very first thing my pastor did was pull out that track, that old track. I don't know if it's still around. It's called the Four Spiritual Laws, and it's the one that shows the division, you know, and the bridge and how sin separates us from God, and he led him to Christ there in the office. And this was all well and good. My family and I were relieved because now I was going to marry a believer, but it didn't stick. And even after we married and had kids, he had no desire to go to church, to grow spiritually, or to lead our family in that regard. So I now tell gals, back then it was like, make sure you marry a Christian, right? I, tell, I say, don't make sure you marry a Christian. Make sure you marry somebody who really loves God. Isn't that the key? That is the key. Marry someone who really loves God. So the very first sign of power and control in our relationship that I saw came right after our honeymoon. I was 22. Um, we came home from our honeymoon, and my girlfriends were still in town that had been in the wedding because we came home a little early. And immediately they wanted to know, how is the honeymoon? Let's go to lunch. Let's go shopping. Let's go have fun. And I was like, yeah, you know, because I, they weren't local to me, most of them. And so I thought that would be great. And I was told by my husband that, that I shouldn't do that. He told me that by doing that, I would be choosing them over him. And we had just gotten married, after all, and this was kind of still our honeymoon. And he didn't want me to do it. So I was pretty surprised. And you don't know me very well, of course, but Trisha knows me, and Bill knows me, and Jessica knows me a little bit. And I'm pretty stubborn. I really am. <laughs> that's, that's come down a little bit over the years, but I'm pretty stubborn. But I was really surprised, but I resigned to it because I thought that God intended my husband to be the head and the decision maker. So I, it was really sad. I told my girlfriends, you know, I can't come. Sorry. But his increasing control came later. When I was on the phone, he had to know the details of the conversations. Um, at one point, he even strongly recommended that we limit visiting my parents anymore because they strained our marital relationship. And I've since learned that this is a very common tactic in controlling relationships. The intent is to isolate you from the ones who will support you the most. And that will happen in abuse. And it worked, you guys, it worked. For several years, I pulled away from my friends and my family, believing that I was prioritizing my husband over them. My brothers, you know, say now, said now, that they've barely heard from me in those years. They were right. I love my husband. And did not God say that one should leave her parents and cleave instead to her spouse? Isn't that what he says in the word? Hmm. Thank you. We'll talk about that. <laughs> It's said, but it's not said. So we accumulated life-altering issues. He was always in pain with headaches, and the doctors were absolutely mystified. We both lost our jobs when I was sexually harassed at our work. 
And those are before those protection laws came into place that are so much better now. So we were on unemployment, and we had to move into this 30-foot brown, brown, bleh, travel trailer on my in-law's property. Not my finest moment, for sure. And it wasn't an easy time. I really struggled with depression, and every morning when I woke up and realized, oh, I'm still in this trailer, I would cry. I was like, it's just, it was awful. I did keep writing, and I released my first two books to market at that point. Uh, the first was on a brand new word processor, and you might not know what that means either. I was going to do a picture, and then I'm like, ah, oh, it's too many pictures. <laughs> and the manuscript was saved to a floppy disk, which was a little square floppy disk. That's okay, I see some people nodding over there. All right, all right. First of all, let me ask you how you're doing. <laughs> exactly. I'd like to get a check-in on you real quick. So you let me know. Are you a thumbs up right now? Are you feeling all right? Are you a thumbs down right now? Or are you kind of eh? Okay, stop pointing at your neighbor. No. <laughs> Thanks to the item. It's good no matter where you're at. You're safe here with her. So before we moved into that trailer, uh, we had tried for a year to get pregnant and have a baby and no results, a lot of discouragement. And now that I actually was pregnant, I got that book that they give you what to expect when you're... And this is, this is like, what, probably the 50th edition. <laughs> and back then, it was the 20th or something um, like that. But there's a chapter in that book on high blood pressure and preeclampsia. And I read it, and I thought, there was just this pause in my spirit, and I reread it, and I shut the book, and I was like... My future includes this. This is in my future. I knew it. And it's not the first or the last time that God had prepared me for a trial ahead. So the morning I woke up and my face and my hands and my feet were swollen, I called my doctor. They said they could see me in two days. And because of what I'd read in that book, I said, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And they measured the protein in my urine, they took my blood pressure, and they immediately transported me via ambulance to Tacoma General Hospital. Because there was a NICU, and if you don't know what that stands for, that stands for a neonative intensive care unit. And what that meant was I was going to have a baby before she was supposed to be here. Now at the hospital, they said I would stay on bed rest and calm things down. The medical team seemed really optimistic, so it was really weird when they handed me a book on how to care for preemies. I mean, at least it was a book. I'm glad it was a book. But I'm like, why should I read this book again? (laughs) And they took my husband to tour the NICU. They had a bed for her, an empty incubator bed for our daughter. They asked her name, and they put uh, her name on the bed in a little pink card. The medication that they gave and still give creates horrible side effects. Is there anybody else in this room who has been on magnesium sulfate? Ugh. Oh, the worst stuff in the world. And they still use it. And I guess it's effective, which is why they use it. But on day four, tears flowed when the doctors made rounds. I told them I couldn't handle it anymore. And my folks hovered over me. I had to ask them to leave. I mean, they're all worried about me, but I had to ask them to leave because my vision was so blurry. There were four of them. So imagine instead of two parents hovering over you, you've got four hovering over you. And I'm like, you guys have got to go. <laughs> you know, I, can't. I felt horrible, but there was just too many people around my bed that actually weren't really there. But my head pounded and my teeth felt like they were pushing forward. I had watched my baby's monitor through the night and her heartbeat had dropped three times. So I felt God's hand on my shoulder that morning when the doctors came in, and I informed them of all of this. And then action happened really fast. Within an hour, the on-call physician appeared. This was on Thanksgiving Day, so I'm sorry, Mr. On-Call Physician. And we prepped for a C-section. 
A kindly older doctor patted me on the shoulder and said, at this point, we feel your baby will do better in the nursery than inside of you. And I later learned that the doctors told my parents, we can save the baby, but we are not sure that we can save your daughter. I had felt God's hand on my shoulder. I did. Was it? And I wondered, you know, was it my call to go home? Well, obviously, no, because I'm here, right? But it felt really strange to think about it later. I never felt like I was dying. I just felt his comfort. And I think that's probably a hint of what's to come when it is my time of what I will feel. Megan was not born on her due date of February 4th. She was born Thanksgiving Day. She was 29 weeks, 2 pounds, 7 ounces. And to give you a visual, her head was the exact size of the palm of my hand. She went from here to here. When, when she stretched out, most of the time she was not. She, uh, she was not stretched out at all. Um, and immediately as they lifted her out, my blurry vision cleared. And she cried. Thank you, God. She was breathing on her own for now, and the nurse lifted her very quickly for me to see her, this little tiny wrinkly baby, and they whisked her onto her own table with three staff members that were there just for her. They ran to the NICU. I mean, they took out the door and they ran down the hallway. And Alan immediately left my side to go too. And I trembled because, you know, you get anesthesia and you do that after anesthesia stretched out on that surgery table, suddenly feeling pretty alone. Um, I didn't know if she was going to live or die, but she was alive for now, and so I begged God to keep it that way. Megan stayed at the NICU. There we are giving her her first tub bath there. Decent picture of all three of us. Cute little thing on the right. Yeah, I'm Not that I'm biased or anything, you know. She had to stay 42 days. Um, I went home a few days later. It is something you never plan on to go to the hospital to have a baby and go home without them. That was really, really tough. So at home, we jumped with every ring of the phone and drove the hours to visit as much as possible. Megan did have to use a ventilator after the first day, and her lungs were tired. She had a heart murmur and a hole in her heart. Those are resolved with meds. She, of course, needed oxygen like most preemies do. And she received surfactant from animals to develop her lungs. And they pretty much told us if she'd been born even four years before, she wouldn't have made it at that point at two pounds, seven ounces. But now, look at her. <laughs> Yay! I know, she's in her 20s and she's getting her master's degree in speech pathology. And speech is something she had to do um, as she was growing up because she was a preemie. So, and that's uh, her, her boyfriend, Ryan, there is, is with her. But grateful for her, for sure. My husband, Alan, had a lot of headaches and since he was young, ever since he'd been young, and he became a patient of the pain clinic. Anybody ever heard of those? Oh, yeah. I hear a story over there. And he started on opiates. They gave him morphine for his headaches. We started a security patrol company in the trailer uh, in desperation to get out, and within a couple years, we were able to rent a house and get out of there, which was good news. But eventually, he was in enough pain that he was not able to work anymore. And so he had to file for disability, for Social Security, which was a process, which they always fight, um, and you have to get an attorney. And from then on, I became the sole breadwinner for the rest of our marriage. It wasn't enough after Megan was born, and we had to file bankruptcy at that point in time. We did that a couple times, actually. And this was before the current programs that are in place at hospitals for care, you know, that they will, they will bring in grants and cover your bill or cover part of your bill for you. That's before all that existed. So they were both medical bankruptcies. 
Then Nick came along, our second child. He was born in 95. And this is an era when they encouraged normal birthing after C-section. You had a C-section, and then there was this huge movement of you can have a normal birth after a C-section, and everything will be just fine. And so that was highly encouraged, and that is what we did, what we tried. Um, but he was born not breathing. He was blue, cord around his neck, um, and a doctor rushed him across the way and spent real, several minutes seriously resuscitating him. And I barely breathed when I realized what was happening. He hadn't cried. I saw his blue face. I was like, he's not breathing. He's, di- he's dead. He's, he's dying. He's going to die. And, um, but finally, they resuscitated him, and he let out a whimper after several minutes. And so I thanked God for that because it was so scary. A month later, he got a really bad cold and landed in the hospital. He made it. Um, but the other thing that happened there was <laughs> that CPS was called because they had discovered when he was in the hospital that he had a healed broken collarbone. The hospital reported us for child abuse. That had never happened. And fortunately, we had a pediatrician at the time that was a go-getter, and she was able to get x-rays from the hospital after his birth that showed that he broke his collarbone during birth. Um, it wasn't anything at home. So eventually the case was dropped. But boy, is that scary. Have CPS called on you when you haven't even done anything. So here's Nick now, and I have a, I'm a nana. This is Junie. <laughs> I know she's so cute. I'm still, I'm still so biased, aren't I? Um, so Nick and Davina have Juniper, and so grateful for my, my middle son there. So we had two small children that were only 14 months apart when Alan complained to me um, because I wanted to go to Rick's wedding in California. It would be wrong, he said. You're choosing your family over me. I've heard that line before, huh? And it would also leave him alone with the kids. He refused to let me to find someone to help him. I called both his sisters, and they were both available to help with child care. In this one, I got more stubborn, and I fought, and I attended anyway. So I literally flew down there, and one day, spent an hour at the wedding, an hour and a half at the reception, went back to the airport, flew home all on one day, exhausted, and I did that to degrease the time away, you know, for his sake. But I did pay dearly, because what I got was a week of glares and angry comments intermixed with the silent treatment after I got home, which was no fun at all. But to me, family weddings are important, right? So I wanted to go. After 10 years of getting nowhere with medical answers for Alan's pain and a ton of research, finally, in the early 2000s, I found an endocrinologist in Astoria who was using really high-resolution MRIs to diagnose pituitary tumors. And I know those of you who are nurses in the group now know that that's very common, but back then it was not. It was still a groundbreaking thing. He was increasing his pain medication use, and yet he was in pain most all the time. We waited four months for an appointment with this endocrinologist, and we drove four hours to see her. But voila, pituitary tumor he had indeed. I also suffered a life-altering car accident in those years, and this, I just couldn't help this car. It was so sad-looking. My, my, car, my car was red and didn't look that bad, but this clip art, just I was like, that's just perfect. So this equaled two years of pain and disability for me, too. So as you can imagine, life became a huge struggle, physically and financially, two parents down. I was always feeling like, man, my kids are not getting enough. You know, both of us are, both of us are down. I found myself being the one and only spiritual influence in our little family. And so when I could move enough to do so, I returned to church with my kids in tow. 
I confessed to my Lord that I had wandered, and I prayed for strength each Sunday a.m. I alone got us ready and made it to church on time, without mishap, usually. But I was lonely, and I felt very much like a single mother, but I plunged forward anyway. Anybody have a house like this? You don't have to admit it if you don't want to. I will tell you now, my current house is nothing like this. But this is what I would call a trauma house. When somebody's in deep trauma, uh, you know, you see those shows, the shows on TV, hoarders. We weren't really hoarders. We didn't have a lot of space. Um, but this was during the trauma years. And I almost didn't show this because I'm like, how embarrassing that my house looked at that. Because I didn't see that at the time. I see it now looking back. But I finally did have a mini breakdown with the stress and the added pain of the car accident. Alan found me huddled under my writing desk one day, and I was sobbing. And this is literally like a two-by-three-foot space that I had crammed myself into. I was hurting. The laundry needed folded all three baskets. The house was a mess. I was running late on a writing deadline. The kids ran amok. Nothing was defrosted for dinner. I couldn't even... I was in too much pain to even go to McDonald's, and I tried not to do that often anyway. So he made me go to bed. The kids were happy with boxed macaroni and toast, and that's all he could stand up long enough to do. And somehow he got them to bed. Their baths would have to wait. He groaned in pain, too, when he came back to the bedroom, and maybe by morning one of us could move enough to wash them up, we would see. Things get bit, they did get better, um, but that was something we always hesitated to voice because after two or three times of one of us trying to be cheerful and saying, well, let's look at it this way, things can't get any worse. <laughs> Things always got worse. Have you ever said that? I don't, I don't understand why it works that way. But that is what um, that would happen. So Alan, in his medical issues, was also pres prescribed steroids since his body cycled between producing too much steroids and not enough steroids. And just like his morphine, he took them on his own schedule. Twice, uh, we again asked him to go to rehab at this point and to consider some other pain control options, and his answer was no, all, every time. But it was affecting our family at this point, and something had to change. I made some poor decisions to survive. I again fell away from God. Boy, I'm good at that, huh? And I looked for that greener grass on the other side of the fence. I separated from him, and he kept the kids at our house, at the house, because it was in their school district and we needed child care. And I visited Wednesday nights and weekends. My job and my apartment were literally two hours plus a ferry right away. This was Washington State, so we got to ride the ferry back and forth to Seattle. We couldn't afford child care, and they were old enough to help with dad a bit at that point. They were seven and eight, and so sometimes I feel guilty now. My daughter talks a lot on how she was raised being a caregiver, and at first I thought, you were a caregiver. What are you talking about? And then I realized it was when, you know, uh, we separated, and I had to go to work, and they stayed with their dad. This is a hard part of my story, but I'm just going to admit to you that I fell into sexual sin in my new town. I had an affair something I thought I was always above doing. Don't we always think we're always above doing these things that we might see other people do? But in truth, I had flirted with potential affairs for years because it relieved the tension in my own life. I looked to other people to care for me instead of God, to provide understanding and companionship and even laughter and even fun. And when this new narcissistic person I chose to hang out with denied me and even called the cops and said I was crazy, because that's what they do, I was broken. But I didn't yet see that it was because of my own sin. I, again, was a victim. 
After two weeks of being sick, I bought a pregnancy test. And I kept saying, surely I won't feel sick when I get up tomorrow, and let's give that cycle one more day, and dang it, you see the picture there. The positive pregnancy test was obviously a dud, you know, and that was not accurate at all. But I couldn't argue anymore when I took the second one in the box in the middle of the day with the same results and cried on my bathroom floor for an hour. So I visited an OBGYN. They sat me in a room with happy brochures, and they said, congratulations, you're pregnant. And I started bawling my face off. And then instantly they said, oh, we're sorry. There, there, are, you know, there are options. There's options. We can look at some options. And I'm like, what the heck am I going to do? I'm separated from my husband. And the father of my baby had already told me to get lost more than once. Mortifying. Could I ever return to church again? What would my parents think? What will my kids think? Wow. This was a big situation. I returned to my lonely apartment, and I, for the first time ever in my life, considered an abortion. I didn't want to go there, but I just thought, man, that would solve everything, right? And I decided I couldn't do that. I decided, you know, God wasn't going to let me do that. I decided, yeah, no, I couldn't. And that's nothing against anybody in the room who may have had one. I know that when, when you do have them, you feel like there's no other choices, and I understand that. And I slowly started feeling my way back to my Heavenly Father, and I acknowledged all the pain and my sin and the drug addiction of Alan and the feelings that came with that. And I started some therapy. Went back to church, read my Bible, returned to work after a short break. But work was not supportive. The father of my child had both worked at the same place, you know? Notice I had a pattern there because I also met my husband, Alan, at the same place where I worked. And they took his side over mine. They paid me for a couple months when I needed bed rest, but then they drafted a severance contract. I could take it, maintain health insurance until the baby was born, and receive three more months of pay. They would consider it a resignation versus a firing. And in the agreement, it was clear that I was never, ever to contact the father of the baby, ever. I crossed that part out and said, unless I need child support, because again, I'm stubborn. I've got some things there. So it was abusive, too, in our corporate structure. They thought I was crazy, too. It's built into our corporate structures and sometimes our churches as well. I signed in angrily because I needed that health insurance. I needed that paycheck. But I did cross out that line, like I said, that said never contact the father of the baby. Alan and I had maintained contact, and this is all of us, Alan and me and the three kiddos, as we passed the kids back and forth. We also spoke several times a week on the phone, and finally, when I needed more bed rest and the father of the growing baby inside me said, go away, I cried on the phone to him. I went back. He said, come home. I told him I can, I'm pregnant. And he was really, really mad, of course, and I don't blame him there. So I believe it took us three phone conversations because I was scared to talk to him in person about it to get to that solution, but it did seem like the best option. So we'd be roommates, the kids would be in only one house, I couldn't work anymore right now so we could all support each other. We would figure it out. He liked babies and he couldn't promise he'd like the kid, as he called him, but he promised that he would try. I again landed on bed rest. Of course I had to, to work with my older two children and, and take them aside and explain, you know, you're, you're having a sibling and it's not the same daddy and I'm sorry. Um, and that was a hard time to do that, ask for their forgiveness for that. And it, it took many years to get through that. We had many conversations, and most of all, it took me many years to forgive myself 
But eventually, that's a whole nother story in itself. God brought me around to that being an absolute essential for me to forgive myself or I couldn't fully heal from these circumstances. So again, I landed on bed rest in true Julie fashion, right? I kept passing out this time, and they had to hospitalize me. Um, They thought it was low blood sugar because I've had an issue with that at times in my life. And then they thought I had a pancreatic tumor after they took some blood work. And they said the only way to determine that was to put me in the hospital and withhold food for a few days. Well, after several days in the hospital, they still couldn't figure out. So they said, we're going (laughs) to take you for a walk in the hospital hallways and see what happens. And I said, I'm going to pass out. And they said, well, we'll be there when you do. (laughs) The nurse came in and got me. Uh, took the wheeled machine all along. We walked down the hallway. Down I went. <laughs> and she was on it. She got all my vitals. All my, and I woke up. I'm going, well, and they said, it's your blood pressure is the problem. And she goes, it was really funny. You were talking to me as mid-sentence and being really chatty because I was just happy to be out of bed. And then she goes, you hit the floor. <laughs> just like that, it was blood pressure. But isn't that ironic? Too high blood pressure with my daughter. And now with my, my third born, I couldn't keep it high enough. But we are all grateful for no pancreatic tumor, of course. So here's Luke. He was born via C-section in June, a week before his due date. And Alan and I had narrowed the name list down to four possibilities, and he sealed the deal by calling the other two kids to his bedside. And at this point, Alan lived in bed. He was in in bed for about 10 years. Um, I mean, not 10 years straight, but you know what I mean. He needed caregiving and was mostly in bed for 10 years. And we all agreed on Luke. And for them, I strongly believe it was Luke Skywalker that was (laughs) influencing that, probably for all three of them. Um, But for me, it was for the strength and wisdom of Luke, the healer, doctor, writer, and the scriptures that sealed it for me. I knew he would be gifted and intelligent, and he is. I prayed for him to use those talents and use them well. And Alan's family also informed me they would accept Luke as theirs, which, you know, was good of them. Grace, right? Luke's bio dad still refused to acknowledge us. I learned that if I chose to seek child support, that then he could get visit visitation. And I suspected he might hurt his son emotionally too. So I kept Luke away intentionally. And this decision was validated again just last year as the right decision. Do you see my pattern? Anybody? <laughs> Even when I was leaving what I learned later was abuse, I chose a relationship with a complete narcissist who appeared to love God, was on the worship team at church, and even attended counseling with me, but refused and still refuses to acknowledge his son. I pray for him. I should probably work on doing that more, but that's all I can do. That's all I can offer him is my prayers. Alan did love Luke, and his brother and sister grew to love him too very quickly. As you can see some pretty cute pictures up there. At three months old, Luke could say, I love you. And I'm not, I'm telling you the truth. I have a recording of it. I tried to get it, you know, tried to get it mastered so I could get it on here. But literally, we could lay him on the bed and say, I love you, Luke. And he'd say, I love you. At three months old. Yeah. Oh, my heart, right? Um, And then I continued to take the kids to church. Um, At an early age, Luke specifically came to me and said that he wanted Jesus in his life, in his heart. And so I was able to lead him to Christ, which meant that all three of my children were then in the fold, which made me very happy. We attended Awana as well as church, and I led children's church, and I led VBS as they grew. And that was all, of course, without Alan. That was just me and the kids. So then came a time period when we moved to the beach. 
And we did it for support. We did it to be closer to my folks who were there and their church. Their church had actually prayed for us for all these things and all these medical issues and not abuse because that wasn't really recognized. But they'd prayed for us for years. We'd also be closer to Alan's endocrinologist and we could get his brain surgery scheduled. So we sold our house and we again lived in a small travel trailer at a campground this time for a month in Cannon Beach until some housing opened up. And then Alan got his surgery, got his pituitary tumor removed. Unfortunately, they were not able to get all the tumor. Unfortunately, thumbs down. They literally told me it was mush. And so they went up, it went up in the sucker too fast in order to get a biopsy, is what I was told, even though he made it through surgery okay. So we had no further answers except that they weren't able to get the full thing and that we didn't know if it was cancer or not. But after surgery, my husband changed. No longer just emotionally and verbally abusive, he changed tactics. He was a large man at this point, over 350 pounds. And when he was angry, he truly towered over me. I've decided for the sake of my children and his family that you don't need all the details of this tonight. But I do want you to know this. Substance abuse does not cause domestic abuse. Okay? They're two separate issues. I'm now trained as a domestic violence advocate, and I have even written abuse training curriculum, and it is really important to separate them. Substances will lower our inhibitions, but for someone to actually be abusive, it means they already have that belief deep down that it's okay to act like that, that it's okay to treat you like that, right? We still hear at arms in particular, Trisha can vouch from so many ladies, well, if he had just hadn't gotten drunk that night, if he hadn't smoked pot that night, things would have been fine. Not the case. It is never okay to treat someone that way. I also want you to know that I never saw Alan abuse our children. Some things did come out later on, unfortunately, with that, but I never saw that happen. But in the end, it didn't really matter, and I'll tell you why. My children were deeply affected by the abuse in the home, even though it was directed toward me, mostly. I see repercussions today still because I kept going back. I went back four, five times. Yes, the poll is very real. It used to be that a woman returns to abuse an average of four times. In the last two years, that has changed. And now a woman will return to abuse an average of seven times, almost double the amount of times. And it's not always the same abuser she returns to. Sometimes it's multiple relationships. God was present, though, during those hard times. He was. It's hard to see it sometimes, huh? Which is what one of our songs is about tonight. But for three Christmases, other families and our church provided gifts and food. Alan's caseworker belonged to a church that we weren't even familiar with, and they stitched him a prayer quilt and prayed over each each block that they put together. And they also made pillowcases for the kids and I. And I literally, I was using mine up until about two years ago when it finally fell apart for many, many years. I left Alan again because I discovered that when I was working, he had piled the kids into the car and he had purchased narcotics from an illegal source on the corner of the street, on the street corner. I was livid. I'm sure you can imagine. And I was terrified because it was no longer safe for my children to be with him if he chose to continue his overuse of drugs. We could lose custody of him. What if somebody had seen that? What if he got, oh man, I was livid. 
but he seemed really unconcerned about it. With his meds now, all was fine, so what difference did that make? I told him he had to get help, and he refused, so I left yet again. But I came back, and I want to tell you why. Always at the forefront of my mind were the lessons that I heard growing up from my parents, from the Christian community, and from our pulpits. And bless your heart, pastors here tonight, I know that you are working to change this, and we see that at arms that pastors are. But this is what I was raised with. Number one, I was the Christian. It was a potential that Alan is not, was not a Christian. Therefore, I was supposed to stay, right? Because 1 Corinthians 7.13, it clearly tells believing wives to not leave or divorce their unbelieving husband. I was to be the example of Christ to him. Number two, two parents. How often have we heard that, right? It takes how many parents to make a kid? (laughs) Two parents to make a kid. And there's a reason for that, because they need mom and they need dad, right? And so I thought, if I leave, I am taking them away from having a full-time dad. And that's not right. They need two parents. And then my favorite word, which Bill can attest to, is submission. (laughs) Oh, I hated that word, submission. That's changed now, too, and that's another story in itself, just to let you know. But according to the word, was I not supposed to submit to my husband? And those three things kept me coming back when I should have left years and years before. I grieved the man I married because he seemed to be gone forever. We fought constantly when I again returned. The use of narcotics never stopped. He overtook them and went through withdrawals every single month. Literally, he would sleep for three or four days, and I would literally be checking his blood pressure, making sure he was breathing every couple hours for a very stressful three or four days. And he did it every single month. When we fought, I was constantly reminded of my sins. Although he claimed to forgive me for my involvement with Luke's dad, uh, he couldn't let it go. And it became ammunition any time he needed to turn the attention away from his own actions. I dreaded having to bring up any conversation. And so at that point, I really backed off and just did not talk, did not converse. I avoided it as much as possible. Now here's another hard subject. It's called pornography. Alan brought pornography into our marriage. We fought about it for years. There were actions I took to try to take away the magazines and the things that were coming through. But it never worked because he wanted the pornography there. My friends, the use of pornography falls under the category of sexual abuse. You should all be aware of that tonight. If you didn't know that already, now you do. And all abuse is also emotional and psychological. We tried to make things work, but he would get mad and bring things up again constantly. And half of what he claimed at this point hadn't even ever happened. So it was these imagined sins that I had done. But I was continually questioned as to my actions. Where had I really been when I went to the store? Who was I texting? Who was I calling? Who was I emailing? And when concerned family members asked about it, I stood up for him. Do you know what I said? I said, yeah, he fights dirty, and I excused his behavior. I was, after all, guilty, guilty of of much. It took me getting away from this behavior and then much additional time afterwards to understand that this is a common tactic of controlling people. You're not allowed to speak of their indiscretions, but you are rarely shown that same respect. 
To admit their faults means they have to address them, and a controlling person will seldom do this. They want to believe that they're the victim, right? That, that they're the victim. You're the problem. Things got pretty rocky here in the interest of time. I might scoot forward a little bit here, but the abuse did increase once um, to a physical incident and also to a sexual incident later on. He remained in a great deal of pain and had been kicked out of four doctor's clinics for his overuse of medications, and he was unwilling to go to counseling, so I got really desperate. I alone went to see our children's and family pastor at my church on the coast, even though Alan protested it. And after a few minutes of chatting, the pastor handed me a chart of certain behaviors. And what was actually on it right now is fuzzy, I can't tell you. That's what trauma discovery will do to you. But he asked me, does any of this happen at home? And I said, no. I shook my head and I tried to hand it back to him. <laughs> he was like, no, take it. And I took it back and I read more and I saw Alan's behaviors on it. And at the top was clearly labeled abusive behaviors. I kind of wanted to laugh because this was really uncomfortable. I also wanted to cry, but neither could I fully admit it. How could I tell my pastor that, yes, my husband does these things, did those things? Many of them happen many times a week. So tears trickled as I crossed my legs and I bounced my foot up and down. And, you know, did I tell you I'm stubborn? You know, you got that idea, right? I said to my pastor, you're saying he's abusive? You haven't even met him. That's what I said accusatory and defensive. And my pastor said, well, I'd like to meet him. And I shrugged. I said, you'll like him. Most people do like him. He's charming. He wanted to meet him anyway, so I approached Alan about it, and he was a little suspicious. But I just said, he just wants to meet you since you don't go to church with us. And he agreed. My pastor really did like Alan. That is a uh, trait of abusers, most abusers. They're charming. They're likable. They're often in philanthropy. I have worked with wives of some of our men in government, senators, mayors, that go on TV and smile, big grins, handsome grins, and people are like, oh, they're good people, and they're not. So never take somebody's exterior to what they're truly acting like at home. So the next session, we pondered that. He visited Alan as I had gone grocery shopping, and he sat by his bedside, and they had a great chat about classic cars. And I said, classic cars? Okay, you know. And he said, you're right. I liked him. We had a good conversation, and he's funny. We laughed a lot, but, and he paused. This is really important. He said, that does not mean that I don't believe you. I believe you that these things are happening. So, man, I cried. <laughs> I bet you know I cried, huh? I couldn't stop him. Maybe I wasn't crazy after all. Somebody finally believed me. Somebody supported me. Somebody whose spiritual guidance that I admired. So his comment released me and my conscience. No matter what I had done, I deserved better. We met several more times. Alan showed his distaste, and later I learned it's stalking behavior. By texting and calling several times throughout each session, my phone would rarely stop. And as rude as I felt answering them, I had to because I was scared. I knew there would be trouble when I got home if I didn't answer his texts and his calls quickly. So I would interrupt our sessions to do that. I expressed concern about sin and what leaving Alan would mean. But all the pastors at the church, and I was a lucky one, agreed that getting the kids and I out of the house was important. I meet many women today whose churches were not supportive. I can tell you that over the half of the ladies in the recovery groups that I teach 
have had an experience with a church, a pastor, a counselor, a Christian counselor, or maybe even three Christian counselors in a row that have the wrong response to abuse. And they say things like, well, if you would submit more, or maybe you need to fast more, or how about praying more? Oh, and come on in for couples counseling, which we never recommend in abusive situations. Over 50% of our ladies um, have left the church due to this, and not just our local church, but the big church in general, because of the response that they've received. Men are abused as well. I know you know that. Um, but I would pray that you in your own life can believe and help support these people when they come to you. There is some information over there on the table to help you with that. If you have people in your life that have approached you with abuse, what to look for, how to respond, and how important it is that our response as a church really, really is. So our situation did come to a head during really five nightmarish days. Uh, Alan was completely out of it. <clears throat> He paced the house with his gun in his hand. He mumbled nonsense, heard things that weren't happening. He couldn't be left alone without supervision. And I was really afraid he was mixing medications, but he wouldn't let me near his locked med box, so I couldn't find that out. He physically would push me away. I asked his doctor to do a house call. Doctor came in, took his vitals, declared him well, walked out, and I ran after him to the curb. And I said, something is wrong. You have to help me. And he said, no, he's fine. During these days, I called 911 four times. And the first time, they did take his gun, which was helpful, because I had been basically putting it under the couch cushion and sitting on it for safety-wise. Didn't want it to go off. Didn't want him to accidentally shoot the kids or anybody else. But the other times, they would refuse to transport him, because he knew his name, and he knew his zip code, and he said no. I don't want to go. And the very last time they refused to take him, um, I literally was sitting on the couch with my daughter, and I was crying and saying, I don't know what to do. He's going to die if we don't get him some help. Something is seriously wrong. Five hellish days, truly. His caseworker told me to file emergency guardianship, and my parents paid for it. I didn't have the money. I got out of the house, got to the attorney. The attorney got to the judge. The next day, I had paperwork. And the next time the EMTs refused to take him, I handed them a copy, and I said, I'm his guardian. You will take him this time. So they loaded him up. I tried to reassure him. I told him I'm trying to save his life and things would be okay, but he became very angry. At the hospital, they intubated him, and they asked me first. And I said, yes, we've always agreed that if there's a chance of you know, getting better, that we would use intubation if necessary. And the doctor looked me in the eye and said, well, I think it's probably too late for that. He said, but we will give it a try. He did get better. They took him to the big city hospital, put him in a medical coma for two weeks where they completely controlled his meds. He had overtaken his steroids and put himself into steroid psychosis. The guardianship papers were served to him when he awoke, and he called a social worker. So immediately I was blocked from getting any information about him, visiting him, talking to him. So I couldn't even explain to him what had really happened. I knew he had no memory of it. This was three weeks ago. He had no memory. And when they were ready to release him from care, I grew really scared. My dad visited him to give him the final ultimatum. Either he needed to go to a home and get some care and get some help with his med use and this abuse, or the kids and I would not be home when he arrived. He refused again. 
So I visited with the pastor, and I'm like, how do I do this? I got to leave. How do I leave well? And it was a pretty hard day when the kids and I left to go visit Grandma and Grandpa, and on the way I had to tell them, we're not going back. Your dad and I are need some time apart. My daughter had an asthma attack. I had to pull the van over. She was thrown up on the side of the road. Um, it was a tough time. So he was extremely angry from then on with me and showed it verbally every time I saw him. <clears throat> we needed paperwork in place because he was trying to keep the kids when he wasn't supposed to have them. And so I got separation papers, and he, he determined that we were already separated. That was stupid. We needed to get a divorce. So we did end up getting divorced. But a, year, a little over a year later, we actually returned to the home to live as roommates. Here we go again. Without a larger household size, he would lose his medical benefits, and his medications were like thousands of dollars a month. So the boys bunked up, and I had my own bedroom at the other end of the house, and I was commuting two hours each way for a new job. And a condition of that job was that I needed to move within, you know, in the area in three months' time. So we did do that. We found a house with two master bedrooms and moved to Tigard, Tigard, Oregon. So I know you're all wondering about Bill, since I've mentioned him a couple times over there. And that is, yes, the same Bill I initially met at Ecola Bible School now 30 years ago. <clears throat> yeah, we weren't even Facebook friends at the time, but we had an Ecola group from Ecola Bible School in common. And I learned that his wife, Glenda, was in the hospital. They lived in Pennsylvania, but they vacationed in Cannon Beach every year. And she had had a bike accident, had hit her head on the pavement, and had immediate brain surgery to take off fluid. And she never woke up. And I felt immediate compassion. And I felt a really strong pull to message Bill. And I really avoided trying to message any other guys in my life. But I felt that pull to message him and tell him that I was praying. And what can I do? Because I'm like literally within miles of you guys in the hospital. Um, and he surprisingly, he said, let's meet for coffee. Let's go to Starbucks this Saturday and catch up. So we did. We met at Starbucks and we talked about how I could help them with her being at the hospital. And I shared with him about my divorce, a little bit about the control and abuse in my former marriage. I, I did not admit that some of the things were still happening, even with the times when Alan and I were in separate houses, they still happened. And Bill's a pastor, and he informed me that the church in general at the time doesn't do well with people like me. <laughs> and he wasn't talking about my stubbornness. <laughs> he said, we do not do well with either the divorced or the abused in our churches, and we need to get better with that. And there was a little piece of me that healed that day that thought, here's a pastor who gets it, who has never had this in his life, but he gets it. And that is so important. Education is so essential. So Glenda did not wake up. They moved her to a long-term care facility, and seven weeks later, she, uh, she was chosen to be promoted to Heaven's Gates. Of course, not the ending we wanted. We wanted to send her home whole and happy with, with her family. But when she left, Bill told me she's completely healed now, and I knew he was right. We obviously stayed in touch as friends when he turned, returned to Pennsylvania. And then things with Alan intensified. He became interested in another relationship, and he uh, moved out of the house that we were in. He couldn't move by himself, so the kids and I piled all his stuff and helped him get there. And that was kind of like a second divorce in itself, especially for the kids. Even though we hadn't been physically involved, we'd still been in the same house. He had a couple shady roommates in and out. Made me nervous. 
I later learned he had a group of friends in the complex who provided drugs to each other on a regular basis. The kids came home with some stories because they would visit on the weekends, as well as a strong aversion to me. You see, their dad lied about me frequently, which is also common in abuse. I tried very hard to not speak badly of him. I felt strongly on my conscience that that's what God would want me to do. But he didn't maintain that same conscience. So it took me days to get the kids back on schedule and even speaking to me every single time I picked them up. Several weekends I did have to remove his parental visits because he wasn't making good choices. Once, my youngest called me from the porch saying, Dad locked me out. I'm supposed to stay on the porch and I'm really scared. And I'm like, what is going on up there? I know you're thinking, how could things possibly get worse? And I know I keep thinking, <laughs> thinking the same thing. But how are y'all doing? Are you doing okay? Yeah? All right. I'm glad. Good. So Bill and I stayed in touch, and he started visiting more frequently. And we finally looked at each other and wondered, what was God doing? Were we supposed to be more than friends? It seemed very carefully orchestrated, is all I can tell you. And as he accepted and loved my kids and supported me even more, and sometimes even financially helped out. So Bill and I stayed in touch, and he visited, and he accepted, and he loved my kids. And as he did, I realized he's a, he's a true man of God. He really is. He loved God, and not only did he love God, he loved God first, which is key, right? He treated me like gold. And eventually when I visited him in, um, in PA over Christmas, he told me he loved me. And without hesitation, I returned it back. Because for the first time, a man in my adult life, other than my dad, truly treasured me, honored me, and protected me. His actions showed it every single day, even when we are in different states. I'm grateful for him, and I am the luckiest gal in the world. I really, really am. Well, at this point, Alan needed more care. The state was unable to pay for any, so my middle son, Nick, who was an adult now, decided to move with him, and I struggled with this because literally I cried at the curb for quite a while after Nick left, and I was scared for him too, but I had no idea how scared I should have been. Um, my older two kids have repressed a lot of memories from that time, and I get it because what happened was their dad started using meth, something I thought would never happen in our family, and he thought would never happen. He was always very anti-heavy drug, even though he used his opiate medications. We got really scary texts, and his roommates and the guy upstairs were threatening to kill him, he'd say, and they put poison on his pizza. He had bruises on his body. He sent pictures, and I was like, what is this? And I had no idea, so I sent it to his sisters, and his sisters said, those are meth sores on his body. And I was like, this is insane. And as usual, he was, he was pretty mad at me. And when he realized that Bill was involved in my life and that we were dating, his controlling behaviors increased quite a bit. He texted and called often late into the night, and eventually I learned to cut it off because it wasn't healthy for me. So I started to feel comfortable as I healed with cutting off the conversations. It takes me a long time, apparently, to learn some things. So, so he was hospitalized for meth once, and the social worker said this is what happened. Um, and also said, you know, in his medical condition, if he continues to use meth, he's not going to make it. And I was like, man, you know. And he wouldn't talk to me. Again, he was angry at me. And technically, Megan, my daughter, was his next of kin since we were divorced. So I sent her into his room. And she said, Dad, would you please go and get rehab? 
Would you please go and get this problem taken care of? And he said no. So again, we were stuck in his mess. Again, it was his mess. But it was time to take care of myself and the kids too. So I pulled them out of their visits again after informing him why. He still insisted that he never intentionally took the meth and that his roommate was sprinkling it on his food. Yeah. Thanks for laughing. That's great to have a um, laugh. Laughter is good. <laughs> I learned later that more awful things happened in that apartment and in particular ones that Nick was exposed to. And I can't talk about all of that yet. But there were some pretty awful things that happened in that apartment that I will have to work on healing from as well. Alan died. He was 47 when he died. It wasn't due to meth. It was because he was withdrawing from his opiates, as he did every month, and his heart couldn't take it anymore. He went into cardiac arrest. The detective called Nick's phone at 3 a.m. on my daughter's 21st birthday and wisely asked to speak to me instead of him. Alan had managed to call 911, but he had been so paranoid that he had used his big electric scooter to block the door, and they had to break in. So they shocked his heart and tried to resuscitate him for 30 minutes to no avail. My heart really broke. But as broken as I felt, I saw God's hands, and we don't have time to go through all these things. Sometimes God does close doors because it's time to move forward, right? He knows you won't move unless your circumstances force you to do so. Trust the transition. God's got you. I've seen restraining orders put in place against women who have never lifted a finger. I've seen court systems separate them from their person. I've seen spouses die, like-minded. And sometimes that's God stepping in. Sometimes that's God saying, that's enough. Keep that in mind. There was many ways in the situation of his death that, that God was present with me and so yeah, that was a rough day. We went to clean out his apartment, and the walls were covered with drawings of eyes and permanent marker. He had said the eyes were always watching him and his texts. The damage was incredible. I found three empty bottles of morphine, and only one bottle was prescribed to him. The other two were purchased from only God knows where, but they were empty. And I can tell you as an ex-wife that the grief process is real, even when you're divorced. People don't get divorced because you don't love each other anymore, usually. And I still loved him. So my kids and I still struggle as we plow through with that at times. But there was also joy, because Bill and I got married in 2014. Yay! <laughs> yes. And my three children all attended, and it was hard on all four of our kids to have a parent pass away and then to have a remarriage. So we're still struggling a few years later, getting the kinks out. Um, but Bill was a great choice, both for them and me. And I came to that point. I had to come to that point before I said yes to marrying him, that I knew that he was best for my kids um, as well. And he has been. So we have settled into a more comfortable relationship after all those years. I've worked on my healing, and he's been super patient, incredibly patient. And I first walked into the Her Journey classes at ARMS that Trisha was talking about, because I'm stubborn and I'm type A, right? And I first marched in and said, I'm going to teach these classes, and I'm going to tell these women that they don't have to stay in abuse, that it's not God's plan ever, ever to be in an abusive situation. But I sat in the lessons, and tears were rolling down my face, and I realized, that, boy, I got some healing to do. I had to work on it, and I had to work on it, and I worked hard. 
but I've now been teaching uh, those Hurt Journey classes for over 10 years. Um, I work for ARMS as well as their women's director. I'm a certified DV advocate. I'm an author, as you see. I've got books over there, and I'm a speaker as well. I'm heavily involved in the DV arena, and I help support uh, survivors nationwide and now internationally as well. So as part of my healing, God moved me back to my writing. He said, there's this gift that you forgot about for a little while because you were too traumatized, and now you're healing. Here it is. And so Innocent Lies uh, is a fiction novel about two gals who are trafficked um, and tended to bring the subject of human trafficking up in the U.S. And that book is over there to purchase if you're interested and up and coming is book two, and then I'm also working on a healing devotional, an interactive healing devotional for women who want to heal from abuse and trauma in their lives. So that'll be this next year coming out. So that's exciting. Because really, look what God has done. Without these experiences, I wouldn't be where I am today, and I wouldn't be speaking here to you. And when he asked me to speak, I tell you, I said, I think you mean the neighbor next door, not me. <laughs> So my brother Rick did die two years ago. There's been grief in our family <clears throat> at the age of 52, sadly. It was not COVID-related. Uh, my younger brother and I don't have the best relationship. I struggle with step-parenting. Our kids, some of our kids have wandered from the Lord. My folks are getting older and there's challenges. We still get to the beach every chance we get. But I don't want you to leave today without seeing the immense healing and joy that can happen when you choose to heal from your trauma. It is never your fault that trauma and abuse happens to you. But it is your responsibility to heal. It is your responsibility to take that, to heal, and to do with it what God would want you to do with it. There is healing and there is hope and there is true joy. And, and when I talked to Bill about why he loved me, I said, why were you even drawn to me? You know, I've been abused. I've had trauma. I've had all this go on. And he said that, he said this key thing. He said, because abuse is part of your story, but it's not your identity. And it's so true. My identity is not about my past, right? Your identity is not about your past. It's about your future, and it's about what God has planned for you. So I tell that to the gals I work with. It's part of your story, and it always will be, but it does not have to become your identity. Work on your healing, and as you do, you will also be affecting the future generations in a positive way. If you allow him to do so, he will bring great things from your story. Vic. It's just true. This became my new life verse. This was instrumental to getting me out of abuse. Um, and I wondered if you'd read it with me because I'm tired of just hearing my own voice. Would that be all right? <laughs> all right, let's read it together. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life and your children. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thanks. It's a lot to write out your life story and then try and fit it into an evening and relive it and share it and open up all of the past but it's extremely beautiful and it's a wonderful thing to do. And one of the things we, we were hoping to, to do tonight, and then we'll, we'll go over just a little bit, ladies, if you'll bear with us, because 
we've never done this before at a story night, but we wanted to just offer a few minutes for a little Q&A, just in case anyone had some questions. And it could be anything. It could, it could be for yourself. It could be for, it could be vague. It could be for someone you love. It could be related to this. It could not. Maybe you've just had a pull on your heart that says, I want to help or I want to make a difference somehow. How, how do I do that? I'm just wondering about the male side of it. Uh, what about a man being abused? What about male abu males being abused? In, yeah. For the recording? F physically abused. Yes. Yeah. There, there is definitely a rise um, in abuse for males and females, especially since COVID, by the way. You know, there's always been that argument between is it that men are abused and don't report it so much, or is it that there's not a much abuse toward men? And I think more and more it's coming out that more men um, have been abused. You see it a lot, like if you go to places like Celebrate Recovery and they give their testimony nights and they, and they even say, you know, I was abused as a child. So there are not a lot of programs available for them currently. There needs to be. Um, at the ARMS office, we do have resources, though, for men who are victims, and we do keep resources on our webpage as well. It's abuserecovery.org um, if you know somebody. Healing's very important, no matter male or female. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed most of the things that you had written up there. Is there some place that you have written that together somewhere so we could read that? <laughs> is it in the book? Or? So it's not in that book. Um, it is. Um, there is bits in there from the um, Her Journey curriculum, which are the recovery groups that we teach at ARMS. So that's where I learned a lot of my stuff. But also I've done extensive training for DV advocacy, you know, which is hours and hours of work, which is from various you know, things, and a lot of it is from my experience. So I would say in the healing devotional I'm bringing out, there'll probably be a lot more of that. Yeah, just the knowledge that I've gained, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you, Julie, for sharing. Um, can welcome. people call ARMS to get involved in their support groups, or do they need some kind of a referral? No, no referral is needed. Okay. Her journey groups are free, um, and we keep them free to victims intentionally. We do not publish, however, where they're held or when they're held, and we do that to keep our ladies safe so that abusers are not following people to group. So yes, that's all you need to do is to call the office. It's 503-846-9284, is that correct? <laughs> There's business cards up here on the table for ARMS. So yes, give them a call if you're interested in the Her Journey classes. They were essential for me, guys. I wouldn't be here without them today. So as a, an advocate for this, do you advocate specifically for the program, or are you? do you advocate on a legal basis also, or do you have legal advocates for the program? I have been asked to legally advocate. I have been trained. Um, I have not yet taken anybody up on that opportunity. Um, as far as programming, I do highly recommend ARMS, but there's also lots of other good programs out there. Tricia and I were talking earlier today about doubt that, that there's more and more online that's available, and it does cost, and, you know, her journey's free. I'd start with that, um, but there's other programs as well that for abuse recovery that have been very effective for people. Well, ladies, I want to thank you. I, I know we could probably ask questions and, and learn more, and there's more to the story. I mean, this, this could be weeks, really, but we have a special closing song for you. And I did want to just share something 
really quick as we close um, to give Brian and Becca a chance to come up and, and get ready. If you haven't met them yet, this is the pastor of Calvary Mac and his wife. His name tag says man number two. <laughs> He's <laughs> man number one is, is Dan Canfield over there doing all of the slides. We really appreciate the men that come to these story night events. But I wanted to share one more quote from here. Just as you think about the power of story. We tell our stories, and a drop of truth lands on the dry ground. The ground sings back. Alone, that would be the conclusion to the story. Dry ground absorbing one small raindrop. But another story is told, and another drop wets the ground. And another, then another, and slowly, beautifully, powerfully, these stories carve a pathway. And that pathway becomes a trickle where others with painful stories refresh themselves. Before long, this trickle becomes a stream that heals the nations. And soon, it's a powerful river. And that's why we tell our stories. I'm a dread to make it on my own. Every time I tried to start and start to fall All those lonely roads that I have traveled on There was Jesus When the life I built can crash into the ground When the friends I had were nowhere to be found I couldn't see it then, but I could see it now There was Jesus In the waiting, in the searching In the healing, in the hurting Like a blessing there's very broken pieces this man who needs amazing kind of grace for forgiveness at a price I couldn't pay I'm not perfect so I thank God every day there was Jesus
those of you Calvary Mac regulars, did you know Brian could do that? <laughs> we knew Becca could do that. We knew all his kids could do that, but not a lot of us have heard Brian do that. <laughs> oh, ladies, I want to thank you so much for being here. I want to thank you for attending Story Night and for sharing this with your friends and neighbors and coworkers. As always, we want to encourage you to sign up for our next one. We have one coming up on July 14th, and you can do that right now. If you pull out your phones, you can register, and I hope you'll come hear Pam Grubb's story. And I do want to just give a round of applause to the amazing team that made this happen. There's so many people behind the scenes that do this, including Man 1 and Man 2, and just, it's incredible. So thank you. A big round of applause to everyone who does this. <laughs> Thank you for coming. I want to pray for all of you and for your stories, because we know we all have a story. Lord, we, we give you this night, and we're so thankful for the stories that you write for each of us, even, even in the suffering, because we know that no matter what, our stories don't end there. There is amazing hope and amazing healing, and we thank you for the courage to share those stories so that they do go from one drop to two drops to a trickle and a stream, and then a river. And Lord, I don't know the details of all the stories in this room tonight, but you do. And so whatever those needs are, I ask for you to move, and for you to heal, and for you to give hope as you write the stories of all of these beautiful women. They are your daughters, and you love them, and you are good, and we trust you. Thank you for the story. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for coming. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women. Mm -hmm.